0: Ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby.
1: My name is Reed.
0: And ladies and gentlemen, we have joining us Dr. Italo Brown. He's an emergency medicine physician at Stanford University, um, also a fellow in social emergency medicine. And ladies and gentlemen, a very, very important program. Uh, this is like our emergency <laughs> update, <laughs> basically our COVID-19 uh, vaccine update. And uh, I'm pretty sure everybody, you know, sort of the news heard around the world, this emergency use authorization coming from the United States Food and Drug Administration, you know, this sort of emergency use authorization. And um, yeah, it's about to get real. And we've seen this across the world, in Europe, um, you know, all around the world, we see these bodies sort of authorizing the use of this vaccination. Um, And so it's really time to dig in and, and talk about, what's about to go down. So welcome back to the program, uh, Dr. Brown. So basically, uh, to anyone out there, right, in in case you're wondering what our decisions are, both myself and Dr. Brown, we are emergency medicine physicians, um, you know, literally on the front lines in dealing with this crisis. And I automatically, I'm, I'm getting the vaccine. Um, I'm just going to put that out there. I don't want it to be a mystery amongst people out there. Um, And we will get into the reasoning. I'll talk about my personal reasoning. I think, Dr. Brown, you probably wouldn't mind your reasoning.
1: Um, No, I was going to say that. uh, First off, thank you guys for having me back. You know how excited I am to uh, to to have conversations like this with you all. and, And more importantly, for us to get vital information out to the communities that tend to be separated from it um but no like these rollouts are real um like you just said you're probably gonna get i am definitely gonna get it because i've already received the uh emails and the paperwork the dates are are already set it's uh it's rolling and that emergency uh that emergency use authorization that came out from the uh fda is huge you know a lot of people were that thursday morning when they had the the day long i think it was on a thursday
0: it was Thursday,
1: yep. Yeah, they had a day-long panel, uh, and, you know, people were excited about the NBA, the preseason game <laughs> starting. I was excited about what are they going to say at this vote, you know? Yeah. They had to vote at the end of the day, and, and it showed that there was – I think it was only, like, maybe four people who That's right. uh, voted really? against it. One abstention, one you know, mm-hmm. uh, one person abstained, rather. And so that, to really? me – where the overwhelming majority is saying that this has to happen it should happen because the data is there and it's good uh, i can't ignore that i can't ignore that
0: no i'm with you on that and that's right it was a uh, 17 to four that vote, vote uh 17 yays as in we think this vaccine should be approved um there were four no's and then that one individual that abstained um and and it is you know sort of overwhelming man and that was Going into it, I think the expectation, but still when it happened, I was like, wow, that says, that that speaks volumes. Absolutely. And
1: uh, I wanted to add one more piece to that, man. Like, so, and I went to Meharry Medical College um, down in Nashville, Tennessee, and the president of our college is actually one of the voting members for that.
0: And he voted
1: yes. And that one piece not being like liberated we have to make sure that's elevated. Like there is a president of a black medical school, a historically black medical school who made a vote that basically was the representation for an entire people and has the education. I mean, I'm talking about Hopkins bread, like mm-hmm. steeped in, in, um, in research,
0: like research yep. run the
1: man's resume and you'll see that he's not like a slouch when it comes to this stuff. And if he feels that the data reflects something that is uh, useful and could tremendously benefit communities that he has a clear stake in, a clear a responsibility to, to help and protect. I'm not going to go against that. I'm going to definitely listen.
0: Yes. No, I'm with you on that. Basically, ladies and gentlemen, at the outset of this program, essentially what we are trying to do right now is just get information out there um, so that you can make the best decision uh, possible based on right accurate and reliable information when you decide um, on your decision to to take this um, vaccine. And this is, you know, nearly a year and a making from the time that the genetic sequence of the, at that time, 2019, uh, NCOV, the novel coronavirus, at the time that the genetic sequence was published in late December 2019, scientists at academic research institutions and uh, pharmaceutical companies around the world began working on a vaccine for this. And one of the products of that uh, effort, of those efforts, is th- BNT162B2, a.k.a. the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine. And this is essentially a lipid nanoparticle-formulated nucleoside-modified RNA that encodes the spike protein of this SARS-CoV-2 virus. Oh, yeah! Essentially, the protein is is modified by these two proline amino acid residues that essentially lock the spike protein in a pre-fusion conformation. All of that says is that essentially this mRNA that is delivered to us through this vaccination allows our body or tells our body how to make this spike protein, um, which is essentially in itself, right? If we look at the spike protein and we look at the entire coronavirus, this is only a very small piece of the virus that our bodies will make. And our immune system, it responds to that and develops immunity to that particular uh, protein. Um, And essentially, Mm. this will shut down or uh, inactivate uh, the virus, and and Mm. it can't infect us um, because we're able to make these antibodies to this particular protein, um, to that spike protein. So the virus just cannot enter our cells. Um, Oh, we are talking about yeah. Imani's here, everybody. Just in case you haven't heard her already, say hi, Imani. Hi. Hey.
1: Hey. We are talking
0: about (laughs) you. Amani is definitely a part of uh, the Health in Harlem family, as everybody knows. Um, But yeah, this is a a vaccine, a product of a partnership between Pfizer, um, a major American pharmaceutical company, as many know, and BioNTech, this German-based startup. And, um, you know, with these initial studies that they had um, in the initial phases of the development of this vaccine, they were pretty promising allowing them to move on to these phase three clinical trials. And it's from that really, um, all of this compiled data where, you know, these decisions were made to finally um, allow for emergency use of this intervention. And one thing really, right before we really get into the nitty gritty, man, I remember, you know, the last few weeks when these these results were coming out um, before they were actually published. And I remember hearing the news and all over the headlines, 95% effective. And I was like, yo, that's crazy, one. But I was like, this is media hype. Like don't get yeah, too I, excited, I Like, yo, this is media hype. Don't get too excited, I need to see the data. I remember in our initial COVID-19 vaccine um, show, where we had um, not only Dr. Brown, but we had representatives from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and we talked about that. We said it ourselves that, yo, we're going to watch it closely, right? I'm not going to get excited or, or really, you know, make my decision until I see the data. And the data is, it's overwhelming, you know? Like, Man,
1: there's a, a a phrase we use commonly in our communities that real recognize real. And I think that that, that was kind of where we were standing in the beginning. Like, yo, it, it doesn't seem real. And then they went back and they raised us and were like, look, real recognize real. And so I'm kind of uh, in a position where the things that I wanted answered and I wanted to hold, like I'm a skeptic by nature. And I think that most of us have this kind of like side eye towards most uh, developments. not just because like, I'm not going to say that, that the speed is what made me qu- uh, question its its efficacy. Cause I don't think that that's the case. It's been something they've been working on for like the last 10 years. And yes. People need to know that. Like they didn't start from scratch. You know, they started from a a compound that they had already been working on because of the initial SARS outbreak, uh, because coronavirus has been around for a long time and and they had something to work with. So I wasn't worried about the speed. I was worried that if they're doing these studies and they have a poor representation of people of color, it's hard to just generalize their effect uh, to the to. All populations. You can't make that. It's an epidemiological uh, fallacy, right? So, in my mind, I was like, you don't have enough people. You guys are talking, reporting numbers of 4% and 5% black people when the US population is something like 15, 14%. You're reporting 8% of Latino populations when we're consistently seeing a growing number of Latino populations, upwards of like, honestly, like 30% almost. So, Uh, I, it, in terms of what's being reported or underreported. So I was like, I need to see the numbers. And I think they went back and they added, <laughs> specifically targeted patients who were from com- communities of color. And they did this through HBCUs recruiting people. They did mm-hmm. this through like a, a very, and what I would consider an effective campaign of trying to uh, demonstrate how serious and how vital it was that we had uh adequate power for communities of color. So
0: can you specify what you meant by power in particular? Yeah, so,
1: power? so when we were talking about like looking at research studies, there is a a, a concept called power, you know, where and we're not talking about the TV show. I know I say power, people think about stars off the rip and ghosts and all that and Tommy and them, time, you know, but I'm talking about strength of a study, right? So It's based upon the number of people who are enrolled and actively followed in the study and how you get results. If that number, that N is not high enough, uh, then you can't make a strong statement about this, whatever effect that you you see or observe being uh, true, being something that is genuine. Because if I have three people in this room right now and... I say I report one observation. Everybody in here uh, happens to wear the same hat on the same day. It's not something that you can say is consistent for every single day. You have to increase the number to see that trend actually uh, manifest. So what I was telling uh, the listeners was that I think when they went back to increase the number of people who come from uh, communities of color, that number of total people increased the number of people in those communities who were being uh, followed increased. And so having strong results saying 95 percent and it being adequately powered means that it's more than likely going to be a true effect.
0: Exactly. Not and not something that is left to chance where we're seeing these uh, results um, uh, falsely. Right. Right. Or it's sort of like an accident that we're seeing this potential effectiveness of uh, this this vaccine. And, you know, if we really want to look at the numbers, right, because this is where it became, became like really um, clear and eye, eye opening for me, where I felt like this is definitely something that, um, you know, I will I will um, accept this this intervention. Um, you know, let's talk about the numbers. Right. So there were 40, 43,548 people that underwent randomization. Right. So when, this, when these studies were conducted at the, at the phase three stage, mm-hmm. uh, they had 43,000 people and they said, hey, you're going to get the vaccine, you're not going to va- get the vaccine. Now, these people did not know this. The individuals that administered the vaccine did not know this. So in this sense, it was a blinded and what we call randomized trial. So there was no, you know, it was basically like alternating the individuals into these separate groups to receive the vaccination. And the other group to receive the placebo, which is essentially um, a saline injection. Basically, you had this randomization occur, 40,000 people, right? Over 40,000 people. And essentially, it was 27,720 in the uh, vaccine group. And then you had 27,728 that received the placebo injection. Now think about right. Just to put this into context, so we can really understand concretely what this means. Madison Square Garden holds twenty thousand seven hundred eighty-nine people. That's the maximum capacity of Madison Square Garden. We're talking about seven thousand people more right than in uh, Madison Square Garden in each group. And when we look at the results, this is where it became real to me. So they basically track these individuals and. Um, you know, They did not manifest any evidence of having COVID um, before they were administered uh, the intervention, and they followed these individuals for a period of months, up to two months. Um, each injection of the placebo and the experimental group was done um, within a span of three weeks. So you got your injection at day one. Three weeks later, you received the second injection, and then they tracked these individuals to see who developed COVID-19. And in the placebo group, it turned out 162 individuals that actually came down with COVID. All right. 162 out of 27,000 um, that were administered that placebo. And in the experimental group, eight people came down with COVID-19. I hear you. The experimental group. So these are the individuals that actually got the mRNA vaccine, right? This uh, Pfizer-BioNTech collaboration, BNT162B2. Um, These are the individuals that actually got the vaccine out of that 27,000 people, out of Madison Square Garden, right? Plus 7,000 people. (laughs) Uh, Only eight individuals uh, actually manifest and were diagnosed with COVID-19. And this is in comparison with 162 individuals in the placebo group. These are the individuals that got the saline injection. 162 of those individuals developed COVID-19. They actually took it a, a step further, right? And, and um, out of those individuals that did develop severe COVID-19, right? So this is these are individuals that manifest um, respiratory failure. These are individuals with COVID-19 that go into renal failure or have liver function abnormalities, um, neurologic complications. Um, Out of this group, there were 10 total patients that developed severe COVID symptoms. Nine of those individuals were in the placebo group. So these are the individuals that got saline. And one individual out of 27,000, right, um, out of Madison Square Garden, plus everybody that's hanging out there scalping tickets and stuff on the outside and passing through uh, you know, commuting through Penn Station. Out of all of those people, one person developed severe COVID um, in that experimental group. Wow. And it's it's insane. So, in terms of efficacy, I mean, for me, right, and just looking at the numbers and and you know the math. Uh, I think a lot of people say never lies, right? That's that's just math. If we look at that, there's clearly a difference. You know, it's just really staggering. Results And I remember listening, like I said, to those media reports, this 95% effectiveness, um, you know, like a week before that, Moderna actually reported some really um, impressive results. And I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like, I really got to look at this to understand exactly what they're talking about. But that's it. That's that's it laid out um, as far as the numbers. Um, And so is this uh, vaccine, you know, efficacious? I think at least from the data that we have now, from these phase three trials that are still underway, that's one thing I wanna to t- say too, is that this is still ongoing, right? This is not done, um, they are still collecting data. It was only 37,706 people out of that uh, 43,000 um, that were randomized to hire the group, only 37,000 that have actually received the two doses of the vaccine three weeks apart um, that have been followed up to this point And if we had that, that solid data on, Um, but that, that's, that's the result. The
1: the numbers are startling (gasps) and they're startling in a good way. Uh, you, you said it, you know, numbers don't lie. And I think that there's like some details and nuances that people, you know, can't appreciate until you have, when you break that down. And that's why I appreciate you saying this. Um, another thing that came to my mind is I want to say that they increased the number of people who were considered obese by BMI. Yes. So this is not, you know, all the healthiest Madison Square Garden attendees. This is like all across the span of, of body sizes, pre-existing conditions, some of these things they did control for. Like if you were, I think there's a couple of things that they did were exclusion criteria. But for the most part, to say that you know the number of severe COVID like is down to one for people who received the vaccine compared to nine that is significant that's extremely significant um, I, I think that there is a tendency for people to want to like poke holes at this research but the reasons why it took so long to come out and for to, to for us to see these this data is because they did their due diligence they looked at these numbers they tracked people they didn't have much loss to follow- up. Which is a huge threat to most studied data, you know, is if you're missing the people and you can't tell what happened to them, you have to exclude them or you have to qualify that information. And so they did not lose that many people. The other thing is when you look at the history of vaccines, and this is something that I heard Dr. Fauci say, uh, and again, I'm not, I don't have any political ties to the man or to the, his, his stuff, but I will say this he has been around for a while and he has. He got stripes in the game. You can't just, you know, get to where he's at without going through HIV epidemic and being a, a lead advisor on that and getting us to where we are in terms of funding for research for most like severe viral pathogens it's because of him. With that said, he, he told us and um, we were doing a it was a broadcast that the history of most vaccines shows severe adverse reactions within the first 60 days and for most of the studies that are being done both moderna and pfizer they tracked those 60 days i'm talking about like a bloodhound they made sure that there was no loss to follow up that they watched every single thing had clear reporting on those those uh outcomes in those uh first 60 days and for them to say that after these time frames very few adverse reactions you're talking about like site uh, allergic reactions urticaria or hives uh there are a couple people who may have had some just general break uh, outbreaks due to uh incompatibility but you're not having people die because of the adverse effects that to me oh, is extremely important to bring up
0: and the thing is i mean you know one thing that um i think we all should understand and you know in having conversations with people about this, my family, friends, colleagues, you know, not to shy away from the adverse effects, right? There's adverse effects with any intervention, medication that's administered, whatever it is, there's always going to be something, um, as far as an adverse effect. But even if you just want to consider, Hey, I got to get poked by a needle, right? Just that discomfort. Um, but you know, among the most common, um, side effects of this was local tissue, uh, inflammation and and swelling. And that's something that Anybody that's gotten a flu vaccine or a TDAP, you know what that's like. You get the soreness at the site of the injection. Exactly. Um, you know, I like to think of it in the most basic sense as hey, I think my body might be responding to this, right? At least
1: I'm like saying um, to myself, like, you no. expect this is where I, I get concerned because our expectations for this to be perfect may be a little bit misplaced. You know what I mean? Like we don't have medicine itself is is imperfect. And a lot of the things that we've done um, in terms of like just general treatment, you take aspirin, there's a side effect. You take Tylenol, there's a side effects. You take Motrin, there's a side effects. And these are things that people take every single day. And I'm, and I'm not saying t- this to trivialize the concern, but I am saying it because you have to expect some degree of a response for you getting an exogenous or something that is not native to your body given to your body. But the risk reward. The risk-benefit analysis is what we have to encourage communities of color to really take into consideration. And I know this is not a conversation that happens at most of our dinner tables or in front of the TV when we're hanging or with among friend circles or at brunch. This isn't the kinds of conversations we have. But we'll use a risk-benefit analysis to decide whether or not it's going to make sense to get the new PS5. We we'll use a risk-reward benefit, I mean, a risk-reward analysis to determine if getting these sneakers are, are going to affect us. You know, We do this all the time, so we can apply those same skill sets to looking at this information, just not getting caught up in the the language, the medicalese, the jargon, the research terms. That's why folks like us are here to break it down.
2: Yes. I do have some numbers. And the so in terms yes. of adverse effects, with the Pfizer vaccine, about 42% of participants uh, reported headaches after the first dose, uh, with 52% reporting headaches after the second dose. Also, relatively high stats of fatigue, uh, 27% after the first dose, 59% after the second dose. Um, however, this was also reported in the, in the placebo group, though at somewhat lower rates. Um, and then in the Moderna vaccine, um, they reported that about 2% of participants developed fever and chills, 10% experienced severe, severe fatigue, had muscle pain, 5% reported joint pain, and 5% reported headaches. Um, It is possible that there is a higher number of participants who had uh, less severe symptoms like this, um, but that isn't reported yet. And also it's important to note that in the Pfizer participants, the younger the participant was, the more commonly they reported the reactions of fatigue, headache, muscle pain, chills, joint, and fever. Um, So you guys touched on it before, but the reason that these adolescents are reporting higher percentages of adverse effects is not because they're getting COVID from the vaccine. It's because they have stronger immune systems, and those stronger immune systems are going to react more strongly. Um, yeah. So those adverse effects that you're seeing aren't at all because people are getting COVID from the vaccine. It's their immune system doing their job.
0: Thank you for that breakdown, Reed, because it's so important. As I said, man, this... I'm gearing up for this, right? Uh, this is something, as I said, um, you know, there's no question I will be vaccinated probably in the next few weeks, um, and my colleagues as well. And I'm gearing up for that, like, yo, I'm going to feel like crap for a few days. Like, that's a fact. Um, and this is part of that risk-benefit analysis that Dr. Brown brought up, right? And, and I think that's something that we definitely uh, need to delve into because I've met the individuals and I know them personally. I love these people. Right. Yeah. Um, and I've heard it around me constantly with people like, yo, I'm not going to be in that initial batch. I don't want to be the guinea pig and so on. Well, one thing, you know, I'm volunteer. I'll be I'll continue this uh, phase three in a way because I will be a guinea pig and, and sort of, um, yeah. you know, see where this takes. But again, this is part of that risk benefit analysis. And uh, from our experiences in dealing with this crisis, um, you know, one thing I think we have to take into account, in addition to considering the possible long term effects of this vaccine right we right. don't know we are in uncharted territory there are some unknowns just as there were unknowns with covid um you know what 9 10 months ago there were a lot of unknowns and there are still unknowns about covid but there are some things that we know now that i think we need to take into consideration and operate based on right. and you know part of that is the numbers and efficacy which we've talked about we talked about the numbers as far as the adverse effects and what those adverse effects are with this intervention. But one thing that we know for sure with COVID man, for sure. Um, I mean, Dr. Brown was just talking about it. We had a little break and uh, was just talking about what he's seeing in California. COVID right. is not the flu. We've established that. (laughs) And there are people walking around with, you know, long COVID, right. The the long haulers that are still um, experiencing persistent Symptoms of fogginess and feeling out of it, um, respiratory symptoms, shortness of breath, chest discomfort. There are individuals that have uh, suffered complications such as respiratory failure and having been on uh, ventilators for prolonged times. And, you know, now they have tracheostomies in place. There are individuals that have suffered uh, myocarditis, renal failure or kidney injury, um, Mo, liver what damage. You're saying? Right? Right? These are not things you wake no. up from. 10 days later these are things that people will be living with lifelong we know the long term effects of covid right we know the long and so you're basically um and i'm not telling you to get the vaccine i'm just saying to operate based on right good information right we know what covid does um and what the complications are um with you not know, yeah. gonna say
1: that like it's not just that we know i'm mean, like people people have family members who are going to experience these exact same complications. It, we we have to kind of like demystify that. Like it's not just numbers anymore. This is like, you know, neighbors, people who live down the street, people who you grew up with, who are having these like long-term issues now because they essentially got COVID and they may have survived uh, that initial insult, but now have 20% less lung capacity. You know what I mean? Like imagine that I have a a buddy who is a police officer. I talk about him all the time, but one of his, his coworkers has not been able to return to work. And this dude is like 40 years old, 40 year old guy. Wow. Can't go back to work because he can't run for longer than like two minutes without feeling severely winded. And he had COVID back in April. You know what I mean? I I've, I've heard reports. I have a buddy who had a patient that, uh, reported having the loss of sense of smell and taste symptoms and they have not been able to restore it a hundred percent she still has sensation like loss of the imagine all the things that you love to do like eating delicious meals or having you know a a fragrance on and now that's just gone or 30 percent decreased you're not as good as it is you once were like and this is in a matter of months. We're not talking about years or over a lifetime. So these long-term effects are real. And the Scarface, one of our favorite rappers, had kidney disease. Oh, yeah, that's it, right. He's yeah. on dialysis now.
0: On dialysis,
1: that's right. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? He's not coming back from that. He's on dialysis. His life expectancy has changed.
0: I'm with you, man. Yeah. Me, man that
1: thing. It's like, man, that we would be so critical uh, to the point where it's like, yo, I would rather just thug it out. I would rather just face this. I'm not saying that everybody has to go out and get vaccinated because I want to be clear in saying like, I'm not advocating for everyone to just go do this. I'm advocating for everyone to do the work. I'm advocating for everybody to say, all right, have a real critical conversation about this. And it can't be informed by, you know, mystical science. It can't be informed by, you know, like, hearsay. It should be a process where you are getting information, vetting that information to see if it's in alignment with what your decision-making process is. The other night I listened to, uh, I was on a a, a little small podcast group and Lupe Fiasco jumped in the group. And this is a brother who is usually very radical in his thinking and conscious. And so I was expecting him to just tear down the vaccine. He said something so powerful. He said, This is a conversation of faith and fact, he said. You can have all the faith and beliefs that you want, and that's okay, but I'm trusting fact on this. I've seen the results. I've seen what's happening to people. I've done the education and I'm going to get the vaccine. And when I heard Lupe say that, I said, if you can take somebody who is from the west side of Chicago, who is not classically educated to the degree of, you know, a physician or someone who works in the in the STEM fields. And or the panelist right.
0: on, the, on the FDA advisory right. committee.
1: And yeah. he can filter through this information. He can look at the results. He can look at the outcomes he's seen in his friend's circles and family and neighborhood and see how it's decimating a community he cares about. And for him to say, I'm going to put my radical beliefs aside and just trust that this is information. This is fact. This is scientific method, you know. That has come down to show us this information, and I'm going to accept that. Then why are we being so resistant? You know, I mean, I, I I don't want to keep going, but I have a couple points that I'll make later about that, about why where the resistance is coming from. But just the fact that you can get a figurehead who is not a doctor to make a natural connection lets me know that other people can do the same thing. Doctor,
2: and that's the speaking thing the, is the truth. Um, something yo. Something I wanted to touch on, which extremely similar, just a tool to help you implement what Dr. Brown's talking about in your daily life. Uh, There's a term, SIFT, which is coined by Mike Caulfield at Washington State University. Um, So it's an acronym, S-I-F-T, standing for S for stop, I, investigate the source, F, find better or additional coverage in other news sources, and T, trace claims, quotes, and other media to their original source. So if you're coming across new information about the vaccine or someone you know is showing you new information and you're you're like, I don't know if this is fact or if this is fiction, then stop, investigate, find other news about it and then trace those claims and quotes in that
1: sift. I've got it. I'm borrowing the
0: information. Age. <laughs> yeah. For, for, I like that. I like that. And it's so true, though. And this is the information age. Where we have that ability. Right. There are some times, you know, where we where where there could be barriers to the information that we need uh, to make decisions but there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of good information at the same time there's a lot of not so good uh, information
1: you said something uh, just uh, now that that we yeah. got to kind of like we got to address and i appreciate you saying it is like we have the access a lot of people have said you know one of the biggest reasons why the, specifically the Black community is against vaccination and against this is because of what happened in Tuskegee and these experiments and this this uh, violation of human rights. Um, and I think that it's very important for us to note, like, in that time frame, they were barred from the information. They could not search it. They could not get uh, a person who had gone through the process of, of learning medical knowledge and learning about these uh, treatment regimen and can come back and say, hey, you know, there is a treatment. You should stop doing this or educate them about the, the way that these studies were being run. Uh, we are not there anymore. We're in a place where access is handheld. It is you can literally reach out to somebody on Instagram. you can go on Twitter, you can uh, crowdsource ideas and answers and vet that stuff. you can search, you can go to so many engines to figure the, uh, out you know the, where the information lies. and that's a huge difference from where we were during the times of Tuskegee. So I mean I just wanted to make sure we made that comment.
0: The research that we did just preparing for this show, right? The New England <laughs> Journal of Medicine made this article from Pfizer and BioNTech. This is public access right now. Essentially, it's an open access article, um, which is not usually the case. But they made it free, right? Everybody can appreciate this and see what was done. Everybody can uh, look at the authors and research those individuals. They're back. Like this stuff is out there. I mean, I did the I did the work. I went back and I looked at these. Looked at this. Looked at the data. Um, looking at the individuals on the manuscript, the authors. And it is something that I think, you know, right now is legit um, in looking at that. And I know the conflicts, right? We acknowledge the conflicts, right? That's the thing. We need to acknowledge the conflicts. Yes, Pfizer wants to make money. BioNTech wants to make money. They are enterprises. These are business enterprises. That is their function. You know who else wants to make money? A lot of people out there feeding you not so good information. (laughs) <laughs> Those individuals capitalize. <sighs> the individuals selling you the snake oil and you know, getting their followers up on man. Twitter and, and Instagram and stuff, believe it or not, they can capitalize too. You're telling um, the truth, man. So, you know, and, and that's the thing that we need to think about, where the information is coming from, what the motivation is uh, behind it, um, before we just say that I'm going to not you know, um, at least investigate this and consider this. As a potential intervention. There's a. Um, it's all out there. It's all say, out
1: there. there is um, uh, there's been a strong, strong push from the the, the people who believe in naturopathic medicine or uh, herbal remedies to not really trust this. And I, my challenge for those communities is like, you know, show us the data of these naturopathic remedies, saving people from the ventilators that we're putting them on saving people from, uh, having cardiopulmonary collapse, you know, like show me that data because I'm, I just don't, I'm not saying I don't agree with all of the, uh, the logic behind trying to use remedies that may not be traditional medicine to Mm -hmm. update symptoms, but I'm speaking about the danger of telling people that you know, every person who decides to just thug it out and get these like use herbal remedies is gonna be all right, because that's not that's not the case. And we've seen enough patients who have been on every single side of you know belief, whether they believe in traditional Western medicine or they have eastern medicine uh habits or they believe in something else. Like we've seen every single person from these types of communities die because of COVID 19. It did not save them. COVID is undefeated it's, when it comes to that. <laughs> as as Lupe said, you said it: fact and faith,
0: right? There's fact and faith, um, and I'm I'm gonna agree. I mean, we tried the vitamin C, we tried these natural therapies with them, and some of the natural things that we do, right? Prone in patients, right? Um, people with severe COVID, we've noted that's something that helps COVID patients now, right? So so we we've tried you know the natural remedies, and I'm open to it, man. If something works and I can give it to a patient and and see, you know, prevent them from being intubated um, and on a ventilator, I'm down. That's something that I will, I will give, but, you know, unfortunately the evidence does not pan out, but the evidence that does is this intervention, this vaccine, um, you know, that is, that is here and on the horizon uh, for really all of us. Dr. Brown, so you wanted to um, address probably the most important, I I think in terms of a you know, the communities most impacted by this virus um, and even the fallout from the, this uh, outbreak um, is from an, in an economic sense, right? Um, really the most vulnerable people, um, you know, what is it that you, you wanna say?
1: I think that there is a, uh, a large amount of work that has to be done on the side of the healthcare system to earn back the trust of people, right? Um, I mentioned earlier about Tuskegee and how that has basically painted the uh, the relationship or colored the the landscape of the relationship between communities of color and the medical system to where we you know expect to not get adequate treatment or equal treatment or for there to be like you know someone pulling a fast one on us and, and that is partially what we're encountering when you hear statistics like, you know, 50% of uh, specifically the black community, something like, I want to say 35, uh, 35 to 38% of uh, Latino communities not wanting to uh, get vaccinated for this when it's available. And the wild part is that, you know, you'll talk to medical professionals or healthcare system, um, you know, advocates or stakeholders, and they'll make it seem like this is absurd and I mentioned it a little while ago, but it's like, you know, this isn't this is gaslighting at its finest. You're looking at a community that's been uh, not just downtrodden, but is, you know,
0: marginalized, marginalized exploited,
1: everything you can think everything. of. and And telling them, like, you know, why wouldn't you just understand that this is not a joke or understand that this is real and we really mean it this time? No, that's gaslighting. To the nth degree, um, but I think that there is a uh, an expectation that people from these communities just kind of like get over it and and run with the program, but that's not how restorative justice works. You know, we have to call out the problem. We have to accept and acknowledge that we are the reason why there is poor adoption of these things in communities of color. We're the reason why the initial data was insufficient. And the That's numbers right. of people from these communities were underpowered and they had to go back and do this stuff. It is not just because these community members are uh not trusting us just because we have a resting level of trepidation or a resting level of hesitation. It is informed by history, it is contextual, yes, it it's is. completely uh and it's completely legitimate. And so, <laughs> so the it's completely it's legitimate, legitimate by the present, not just the past, but the present, like you're saying. Yeah. So uh, I think that that's where we where the greatest gains can be made is you can't have a strategic plan for distribution with phases, phase one, phase two, phase three rollouts of this without including a strategic plan to own and accept the things that you've done or as a community, as a medical community to uh, create worry and instill a sense of mistrust. So it has to go hand in hand.
0: No, you ain't never lie, man. And that's and that's one thing you know that that we definitely strive to do here on Health in Harlem is acknowledge the pain, the suffering. Um, as we said, the history of abuse, exploitation. I mean, in the most uh, severe terms, murder, right? Um, of countless individuals by the medical establishment. I mean, that's something that has happened. Um, and and there are things, you know, in practice today that that still continue, but. You know, at this time, we do have to think about these things. We want to think about them and acknowledge them. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge the facts. The fact of the matter is that we are suffering at disproportionate rates, not only from all of those other things that we talk about week to week on health in Harlem, the hypertension, the diabetes, the heart disease, but COVID is killing us, like hands down, Um, you know, from a physical sense, in the emotional and psychological sense. And we all know the economic fallout. Um, that has occurred, and the only way to really get back on track—and I can't say the only way—but one of the key pieces um, in this puzzle is this intervention um, in uh, vaccination, right? And and getting control of the the spread of this illness, um, so that we can recover. Uh, you know, hopefully, from from all of this, we can even uh, rebound to the point of addressing um, a lot of these issues that we've. That have really led to this point where, uh, with the mistrust and, and hesitancy that we're seeing.
1: I truly hope so. I I, I hope that what occurs is we see, um, you know, not just the reckoning of the medical system, but the fact that we got four and five percent, four to five percent of uh, physicians, of all physicians being black uh, identifying. And I think the number is somewhere around like seven or eight percent for uh, Latinos. We have the same fears. we have the same concerns. You know, it's not like we're some type of elite to where we don't exist in the same communities where uh, the risk is highest. and And seeing us go through this process and filter the information and championing certain things and being vocal and and sharing our experience uh, both on front lines as well as when we get vaccinated is going to be critical. And I think it has such a tremendous, Uh, healing power for our communities to know like, we're real. We're not trying to force feed you things. We're going to go through it too. And we'll be open to having the conversation about that process. That in itself is going to be like very, very critical. And and I just look forward to seeing the way community responds to us.
0: Dr. Brown, I want to thank you again, man we definitely appreciate you on health in harlem um you know our staff myself reed Giorgio, um i love y'all
1: man y'all, y'all up, man. Love we love y'all.
0: you and, and <laughs> ladies and gentlemen um you know i'm going to thank you also on behalf of the listening audience as well for just being committed and uh joining us in between the rough shifts especially you know considering what's going on right now um yeah. you know on the on the west coast uh, with covid and uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's just evidence, right? They're dedicated people here to make sure that, you know, this is something that is uh, safe, um, you know, for us to engage in. And, and yeah, man, we thank you from the bottom of our, of our hearts. Aww. Thank um, you. Also, thank you so much, Reed, for joining. Us. And this is Saturday. Hey, we had to do this show. We was like, yeah, we have to. You know, it's like holidays and stuff. I'm about to go and join the fam for the rest I'm of our... I'm taking that. I'm that <laughs>
1: the acronym <laughs> with me, man i've got it
0: yeah yeah that was dope that was dope um and ladies and gentlemen we just want to thank you for tuning in and also we thank you in advance for sharing whatever you've learned on this program tonight and um this is probably the time where our community um and really just everybody needs it the most right now so we strongly encourage you we're not you know no cause to action but we're just saying that we encourage you to share this information with anyone that will listen. Um, Also, ladies and gentlemen, we plan to make this update um, in in tracking the development of this vaccine, the distribution, you know, everything about this. Um, We plan to make this an ongoing series. um, And so just stay tuned, you know, be on the lookout for more programs dealing with this topic. And what will really help us is you, right? Letting us know what you want to know about um, this vaccine, what questions you have, what are your concerns, what are your fears, um, you know, what you anticipate as problems in your community um, in getting this done. That's that's what we want to hear because we want to serve you um, in the best way possible with the best information possible. So that would definitely help us out in serving you all. Ladies and gentlemen, this show, as always, is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas.
1: Harlem, take care of yourself.